Well, yeah, they're freaks. It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this week's episode with Eric Voskule, an incredibly interesting man who's been working on Bitcoin for years, particularly the LibBitcoin implementation. Uh, Matt O'Dell and I sat down with Eric a couple weeks ago, talked about LibBitcoin, Austrian economics, being a Bitcoin realist, Eric's time in the Navy, and a bunch of other stuff. So you guys are going to enjoy it. Before you do enjoy it, hear me out. All right, we got our, our sponsor, the Cash App. If you freaks are in the U.S. and you have not downloaded the Cash App yet, what are you waiting for? Go do it. Go to your local app store. Download the Cash App. Use the code STACKINGSATS. You're going to get free money right here. STACKINGSATS. That's one word. S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. A bit of a mouthful. But if you do that, upon downloading the app, you're going to get $5. And $5 is going to go to Owls Across uh, Charity Teaching Boys and Girls uh, in the Chicago area, uh, leadership skills via the sport of lacrosse. So you're going to get $5. You're going to donate to a good cause. You're going to feel good about yourself. And then on top of that, you're going to get the beautiful functionalities that come with the Cash App, uh, which allows you to stack sats. You can buy and sell Bitcoin on the app. You can also send Bitcoin uh, from the app to a personal wallet or from a personal wallet to the app, whatever you see fit. And they've also got the incredible boost program on the other side where you uh, tie up your Cash app to a debit card that you can personalize, and then you can go to merchants that are partnered with Boost and save money when those boosts are enabled. So go to your local app store today, download the Cash app, use the code StackingSats, get that $5, get $5 over to Owls, and then, uh, yeah, start buying, start stacking sats on the app. I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode with Eric. I know I certainly did. Okay. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a Tuesday afternoon, sitting down with two fine gentlemen. Very, very excited for uh, this conversation today. Uh, we have Eric Voskul in the house, uh, maintainer of LeBitcoin, software developer, ex-Navy pilot, Navy SEAL pilot, or just Navy pilot? Just Navy pilot. They don't have SEAL, pi- seal pilots, I don't no, think. <laughs> Maybe, maybe they pilot some mini subs. Yeah, my bad. Um, no, thanks for coming. Also, we got Matt Odell in the house as well. Sub freaks. Uh, yeah, I was just explaining. Eric forgot about this conversation, but I was a part of. He was a part of one of my favorite conversations of 2018 last year at Riga. Uh, we were standing outside just talking about Bitcoin. Your thoughts on Bitcoin. Your thoughts on economics, which I'm very fond of. I come from an economics background as well. Um, very excited for this conversation because uh, Matt and I are two Bitcoin cheerleaders, and Eric is a Bitcoin realist, and we're going to get to... That's a new one. I haven't heard Bitcoin realist yet. I, that's what I That's what I got. Like I, Again, like I, I, I was telling you, I listened to like a few pods that you've been on. This morning, I drove up from South Jersey. I feel like I've been talking to you for like four hours now at this point. Uh, and that, yeah, like you, I'd like to believe that you view yourself as a realist. Is that fair to say? I, I don't know if the traditional term, you know, realism from whatever philosophy school that came from is... Uh, is Fully descriptive, but uh, yeah, I, I tend to look at things from a very rational perspective. Rationalist, maybe I don't know. Rationalist, but uh, yeah, labels are hard. Um, I, when it comes to what I say that I know, I have to be able to prove it, or I, you know, consider it opinion. And um, so I, you know, I, I look, I seek to prove things um, using rational economics. Um, the code's different; it's much easier to prove. You know. <laughs> 
something you can verify. Um, before we jump into like the crux of everything we want to talk about, uh, we don't have to rehash too much, but like, how did you come to find and work on Bitcoin uh, in particular, on LibBitcoin in particular? Uh, so I guess it starts back in the early mid-90s when I got, uh, I guess I discovered around 91 that I was libertarian. I was a card-carrying party member for probably 25 years until I finally decided that I was an anarchist. But um, that got me into um, privacy. Um, I was interested in Phil Zimmerman's work, PGP, and uh, then I found uh, David Chome and the work on DigiCash. Uh, I read the patents and found my own name on one of the patents that was interesting. Um, I'm Dutch, and so they were in Amsterdam, and I contacted them. I never got a response, but there was a guy with, with literally with my name working on the project. Um, I met David Chom the other night, and I mentioned that to him, and he was he was curious what happened to that guy. Um, so uh, I had some interest in it. Um, you know, DigiCash didn't really work out. I was in the Navy. I was busy. I kept writing software. I was a computer science major uh, in college. And uh, so uh, when I got out, I got out to do a software company. I did a couple that were successful. I did another one that wasn't. And the day that I shut that down, that so I had kind of ignored Bitcoin and other things like it for years because of um, because of DigiCash, essentially. And <laughs> it's funny, I actually told David that. Um, but then uh, I decided to pick up um, Forbes magazine Silk Road article by Andy Greenberg, and I read that and uh, immediately went to the Bitcoin white paper, read that, and realized, you know, this was different, and I've been working on it ever since. Within, uh, I don't know, a day, I found... Um, LibBitcoin. I, I looked for a software project that I could work on, contribute to, whatever, and, and uh, found LibBitcoin, got together with one of my uh, multi-company friends, employees, and uh, we sat down and decided to start working on it, and we've both been working on it ever since. What, in particular, was the impetus to push you from liber being a libertarian to an anarchist? What? Rothbard. Rothbard? Yeah, when I finally, I'd studied economics for years along with, you know, this... Um, politics and economics are deeply intertwined and um, so it leads you to a study of you know various things so I, I, I found all the Austrian school guys which I tended to gravitate towards um, but eventually I decided to really formalize my understanding and I, I read Man, Economy, and the State by Rothbard with Power Market the whole big thing you know and I read it like I was going to school so if I couldn't follow his proof on something I would read it you know sometimes all day just a couple of pages you know till I really fully understood it and then you know, I got to the end and I and I'd always I, I'd already been kind of on the edge anyway but then I just realized it just I couldn't deal with the contradiction of small state you know so that's kind of when I made the decision that I just really am an anarchist and not a libertarian do you think anarchy is possible in today's world um, so I, I, I don't look at anarchy uh, as a person who is trying to overthrow or disrupt or anything like that. It's more, it's more for me, a personal philosophy, um, non-participation, right, to the extent possible. Um, so in other words, you don't have to see it. You don't have to see the state as a social good um, just because you live in it. And just because you can't avoid it doesn't mean you can't be an anarchist, right? Um, so for me, it's more about how I live my life um, than w than trying to get rid of it, right? Yeah, that's funny because you were in the Navy flying jets. How do you uh, 
like line up your your belief in anarchy with with well I, I wasn't always a libertarian or an anarchist mm -hmm. and it was during that time probably 90 I, I joined the navy in 86 i was working at ibm on a co-op uh cooperative you know employment thing during college and uh it was during that time i was i got if i'd gone somewhere else my life would be very different but i got kind of bored and i realized i just like liked riding my motorcycle up around the catskills and uh playing softball on the weekends so i decided I'd, it was something i you know i needed to do something a little bit more um engaging and so uh, i think I, I picked up hunt for red october tom clancy book and bookstore i was like ah great i'll be a submarine guy <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 yeah i actually rode to the recruiter you know uh and uh they talked they talked me into being a pilot so uh, they thought that i guess they thought my personality was was uh, right for it so um yeah, that's how I got in the Navy, and uh, um, it wasn't until '91 that I started to become kind of more politically. I, I actually got a poli sci minor, but <laughs> it didn't amount to much. Um, but yeah, I, I started to get more interested in things, and uh, that led me to uh, libertarianism, and that led me to just keep reading and learning. And I find the stuff very interesting, especially the economic stuff. I find the politics a lot less interesting. There's really not much to it, but. But the economics. Yeah, politics is more exhausting than interesting, if anything. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a battle of opinions and and, uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's not uh, you know there's no. How would you say? It's not rational, right? It's more emotional, and I find you know uh, I can't really. I can't get really interested in making these emotional arguments about things. You know, I want to know what's true. I want to know what is. So I gravitate towards the economic side of things. And I do as well. And like staying on being a pilot, do you think that experience helps frame how you approach Bitcoin development and thinking of security and attack vectors and such? Well, I, you know, I had a I had a long background in in programming as well. And which again is is kind of purely rational. It's just symbolic logic, and the machine does what you tell it. And, um, but also my experience with physical security. You know, I mean, you can't really well, not very high level as a pilot, but you get to see things and uh, understand how big organizations, the state, you know, tends to think and how it tends to work. And so, that does inform some of my opinion. Like people underestimate the capability of states and people that work in them right and yeah no i you said that on uh the crypto voices podcast and i am one of those people i'm one of those people that believe that state may be too incompetent to yeah that's a mistake yeah. um state's not incompetent just has different motivations in everybody so it looks like it's doing stupid things but it's doing things in its own interest that are not necessarily the interest of individuals um but you know it can be very effective um and um you know, certainly very powerful. So, uh, and the people I worked with were amazing, capable, smart, um, creative, um, and driven. And so, uh, you know, it's not, it's not maybe that way everywhere, but you know, if you had a, if you had a problem, you had a threat, tactical problem, whatever you wanted to solve, the creative solutions that people come up with are kind of amazing, you know, and, and I taught tactics for years. I evaluated people's tactics and, modeled the threat you know got in an airplane and pretended to be a russian whatever and and um, showed people that 
you know, they, it's not as easy as it looks, right? <laughs> you, you can't just assume you're going to kind of walk in there and, and do what you want. Um, so looking realistically at threats is something that, you know, have experience with and also the understanding that all security comes down to human beings taking some risk. And some machines don't provide security. They're tools for people. Um, and I also spent a long time, I still do um, practice martial arts, and that's another case where you just, people make assumptions about, you know, the adversary that don't always hold up so well. Um, and so it tends to make you more realistic about modeling the threat. What do you think, uh, I guess we're going to jump into it now, what do you think are some threats that, uh, that apply to Bitcoin today that maybe some of us cheerleaders are overlooking? Well, the, st the state is the threat to Bitcoin. That's, to me, n without question, it's the, you know, if the state wasn't taking control of money, then people would do what they wanted with money, and, and um, you know, Bitcoin wouldn't really be necessary. It wouldn't be necessary. So there's, you know, there's two kind of levels of threat model. There's, you know, securing your wallet from the, from the random thief or, or from your own incompetence, um, which is probably more scary. Um, and then, you know, the system level security is how I refer to it, right? Well, the, the model that Satoshi laid out in the white paper is all system security. It's not talking about how to secure your keys or uh, things like that. Um, and so the, th the threat is the state, right? If, 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 you, don't, if you don't have that, then, then the, the, the security model would be very different. Yeah. And so in the conversations I was listening to this morning, you think we're still in the honeymoon period. When do you think the state begins paying attention and, and seeing Bitcoin as a threat to it? Well, if you look at the state as a rational actor, which it is um, with different motivations, you realize that, that there's no reason to spend the money to do something about it until there's a cost, um, you know, that, that is exceeding the, the enforcement cost. Right? And there's really not. It's too small. Um, so... Uh, if if you just look at it from that perspective, when Bitcoin starts making enough of a difference, in other words, effectively taking away enough tax revenue, which is what it's saving people, presumably, right? It's allowing them to move money across borders, save money without signage, um, transact um, in, in ways that aren't allowed, right? That's all about saving people money uh, as opposed to alternatives. And um, that means that's money that's not flowing into the state, right? Through foreign exchange controls, through enforcement of other tax laws, through signage. And and when that when that becomes enough to make a make it worth enforcement, then presumably they'll start enforcing. And y and you see this already starting. It's little dribs and drabs here, and it would never be com you know complete and comprehensive. That's not the point. It's just a question of whether it become it starts becoming an issue um, for Bitcoin. Um, but most arguments I see um, come down to, well, you know, it's either going to be so popular they can't do that, which to me reduces to the status quo, right? If, we, if, if you know, gold was popular, you know, money in general is popular, why do we let them do these things with dollars, right? Why do we have foreign exchange controls? If, if, if it's so popular to not have them, why, why can't we program money? I mean, PayPal tried that. It was a you know, nightmare. I, I programmed in the PayPal APIs for a long time, and... Uh, it's a nightmare. It's all these things that they don't want to do, they have to do. So, you know, the, the, the arguments uh, about security tend to come down to things that just don't really make any, you know, majority of them don't make any sense, right? We'll just, it'll be popular and we'll vote for it, <laughs> right? 
I, uh, I mean, I also think that the state is, you know, should be the main focus uh, in terms of, you know, network level security, particularly the American government. But would you say that that you expected a, you know, the reaction seems to be more downplayed than I would have expected. Would you agree with that? Well, I don't know. I don't know what you expected, but um. <laughs> like I thought, I thought at this point when like I I started like focusing on Bitcoin like 2012, 2013. I thought by this point it would be basically illegal in America, at least self custody. Um, it it seems like the reaction has been way less aggressive uh, so far than I would have anticipated otherwise. Well, the impact so far is probably way less more uh, way less than you expected as well, but that w- that's what that would be my response, right? The the impact that Bitcoin is having on tax revenues is not high enough for the state to care yet. And I've actually heard uh, regulators, like EP- ECB regulators, uh, not too long ago say this, exp- you know, on a panel, I think at Oxford. Well, like, yeah, we're keeping an eye on it, but really it's not big enough for us to care yet. Yet, <laughs> right? Yet. And I know you don't like to think about the future, but do you think we ever get to a point where they do care? I think about the future all the time. I mean, it, you know, it's the only place where things happen um, or the present, I guess. So um, do we ever get to that point? Um, possibly. Uh, is it knowable? No. <laughs> right. Um, but we work on it because we think it's possible um, and we think it's possible to defend against state controls. Otherwise, what would be the point? You know, you would go work on R3 or something and have a rage quit if you didn't believe that was possible. Yeah. And do you, do you think, so as you're building like live Bitcoin out and and maintaining that implementation in particular, like what mindset do you have? Like, are you trying to fortify the system or simply make it more useful? Live Bitcoin, um, you know, it's a developer, um, Amir called a toolkit, right? Uh, it's a set of libraries that make it easy to build, uh, actual, Bitcoin stuff, right? And s- as opposed to like building on web service APIs, which tend to be very easy to take down and control. Um, so it, it doesn't really tend to advance, you know, new innovations, new new things, and it didn't tends to absorb them as they as they come along. And um, its objective is to provide a full stack set of libraries that um, is readable, understandable, well maintained, um, reliable. Um, in both to help people understand how the code actually works, but also to you know deploy their own applications around it, and that is so that people can build actual Bitcoin stuff that can operate um, locally at small scale and um, and provide a more securable environment for Bitcoin. Right. So um, I, I my I always say that the 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 uh, the role of a core developer is advantaging the individual or disadvantaging the state, right? If you're working on something that doesn't do that, then you're not doing core development. So things like privacy are important, right? Um, We tend not to work on new privacy tech. We absorb the stuff that that people have developed once it starts getting used. Um, But we work on making it easier to build and more reliable to build things that people can use, which is part of that, advantaging uh, individuals. Yeah, and let's dive into like the differences between the Bitcoin and uh, the Bitcoin Core implementation. Because uh, you came to BitDevs, I believe it was last summer, uh, and presented the Bitcoin 
and it was the first time I was aware that uh, you guys have like a different transaction model than the UTXO model that that Core is using. Yeah, I mean the model, the abstraction is the same, right? Yeah. It's it is what it is, but the implementation is very different. Um, it, it's evolved over time. It's probably started out, you know, I, I, and it did start out closer to the Satoshi, what I call the Satoshi prototype, right? But um, Amir was very aggressive in um, redesigning things, and then I, I continued that. Um, so yeah, the 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 implementation has different objectives. It's a library. It's um, it has f you know full node and uh, you know client side um, command line tools, uh, so you know we can actually see it in in operation. But the objective is. You know, the Satoshi client tends to be, in all its various variations, um, it's an application. And so people chop it up or connect to it using, you know, some fairly clunky APIs. Um, and, um, you know, our objective is to kind of open it up and factor it so that um, people can build on these pieces directly, right? Um so it's, it's just a different engineering approach. The the conceptual model is the same. But for example, we don't have um, a separate store of UTXOs. We just store the transactions. <laughs> the transactions have the UTXOs, and we want the transactions because we want to be able to allow people to, to uh, obtain the chain. Um, so why store them twice? Right? All you really need is some metadata that says, you know, at what height was this output spent, and that's sufficient. Um, to know that it's either spent or unspent in the current strong chain. Um, another thing we don't have is a mempool. You know, people talk about the UTXO set and the mempool as if they're actual necessary aspects of Bitcoin, but they're not. There's a transaction pool, which is a term we use for the set of unconfirmed transactions that are confirmable. Um, there's... Um, there's weak blocks, right? They're blocks that could be confirmable if they were in a longer chain um, that are otherwise valid. Uh, and there's unspent outputs, but these are all just transactions and headers. That's all they are, right? So we have a store of transactions. We have a store of headers. Um, and they're well indexed, um, so we get constant time retrieval no matter how big the chain gets. Mm. How is it maintaining this and trying to get developers to come help you work on this when obviously Bitcoin Core is the lead implement, not lead implementation. I don't know what the correct phrasing is. The, the most downloaded it's the implementation. It's yeah. you know, by, f by far the mo most used. Um, so it's, uh, it's very easy to get people to want to come work on the Bitcoin. There's a, there's a line of people who want to work full time on the Bitcoin. And there's, you know, some that put in a lot of time uh, voluntarily. Um, and we've had some generous, um, um, contributions from you know community people directly to developers to work full time for uh, years, um, which is great. That you know during the last uh, price disruption, that that kind of you know took a hit, and uh, that hit a lot of people, I think, as well. Um, so uh, as a result of that, uh, myself and Tom Bachia, who's a New York Bitcoin kind of money guy here, you probably know him, right? We we uh, I'm not sure if I know have met in person, but I know I know yeah. him from like Twitter and yeah he was he was at Fidelity for a while ran their their Bitcoin blockchain stuff and then came out and has his own um, fund in, in in progress and so he he uh, he's done a lot of work to um, set up a um, nonprofit 
that that'll uh, allow people to donate to the Bitcoin without you know and get the tax benefit basically. Um, so we, uh, we we're calling that the Libitcoin Institute, right? So just a, just a way to help uh, facilitate getting money to developers uh, so they can work full time. But uh, it's a, it's a small team, and I expect it to remain a small team. And I kind of prefer that. You know, I could I couldn't imagine having hundreds, if not thousands, of people trying to jam stuff into the code base. It would just be a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why why would you want that? Just go you know you know go make your own. Um, uh, if you got that many people who want to do something. So it, it is a challenge to get money. It's not really a challenge to get people who want to work on it. There's, you know, it's a very elegant code base. It's, um, it's rewarding. Um, people love it when they start working on it. Um, but, yeah, anybody out there that's uh, listening, uh, throw us some cash and we'll, uh, we'll make even more. <laughs> what would you say to somebody who thinks that multiple implementations is stupid? What they're out there. <laughs> there are multiple implementations. Yeah. You know, it's inevitable. So you can they can say it but i mean i just kind of ignore it it's like you know it, it, there's there's multiple implementations of the satoshi client running on the bitcoin network <laughs> right every time they make a change it's a new implementation and those changes lead to the problems that they tend to describe so it's not it's not possible well, I guess you could you could freeze at the original Satoshi implementation and have everybody run that, and it would never change, right? But that's the only way you get one implementation. Yeah. Um, so it's certainly not feasible. And uh, the nature of competition, uh, you know, makes things better. Uh, and I've seen this. I've I've seen things that we've done be more aggressively adopted, or things be more focused on in other nodes um, because we're you know we're making improvements in some areas that people want to be, be competitive with so it's it's a good thing in in many ways um but yeah the, the the idea that um that there could only be one implementation is false and and that's i mean even what was it even last year at riga was like the day that they they announced they had in introduced into the code base a, a hard fork right so it happens, and it's you know, it's it's inevitable. And the idea that it can't happen was right there, shown to be false. I mean, there's a lot of people that were withdrawing their commentary, and well-known people who said this will never happen, right? Because so well tested. And I, I, I'm a software guy. This happens, right? It's, it's, yeah. No, and then you have instances like what was it a few weeks ago, where maybe a month ago now, where a miner tried to give himself uh, like an extra Bitcoin in the block reward in the Coinbase transaction. And every implementation denied it, so it's it's like good as a Bitcoiner seeing that Libitcoin caught yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I'd be pretty. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty rare for consensus forks to be surfaced. I think some tend to get found before they cause problems, like that one we were just talking about. And I've, um, you know, I think at about the same rate that you know the Satoshi client has discovered these kind of things either in the code or in in live operation we've discovered them as well different things though <laughs> you know like we didn't have that bug we didn't have the inflation consensus bug i was on a flight when it got tweeted out and i was like you know trying to get into the code base to see if and i was pretty sure that we didn't because the design is different and and i was like no we didn't you know we don't and then uh had some had somebody add a few test cases because we didn't have full coverage on that section. And, and uh, the, the rec I think I mentioned this when I was speaking at, at Riga. And, and he came back, and I'm still on the flight, and he says, hey, we have, a, we have an issue. And I'm like, what? You know, we don't have that bug. We get something else. Well, it turned out it was just he just you know, th quickly put together these test cases, and the test case was, was incorrect. But, but yeah, anyway, so um, we didn't have a chance of having that problem because we didn't have the, 
the same design that they have. Yeah, it's an example that highlights maybe the, the benefit of multiple implementations. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, benefit benefit to whom, right? Like the community, it's the individual who's running the node. I don't know. I mean, I just there are multiple implementations. They they do tend to have positive and negative, you know, consequences, but they're inevitable and um, with or without independent teams, right? Even even with just one code base, it's inevitable. And you know, just switching some feature like the database implementation caused a consensus bug, a significant one, right? Um, just having third having third party dependencies like um, OpenSSL caused a dependent caused a consensus bug without even changing your code base, right? So we worked very hard to remove as many external dependencies as we could, including OpenSSL. We had actually gotten rid of it before um, uh, Bitcoin Core did, um, using their own <laughs> libsec libsec library, which they didn't feel was ready yet, um, but. Yeah, so so you know we take that engineering approach to try to f uh, simplify the code as much as we can, make it as readable as we can, expose the consensus rules in a in a very visible, rational way, and um, you know minimize dependencies, do all these things that make it easier to verify the code. And there's very few people that can actually go into the Satoshi client and actually look at the code and go, well, that, that's right or that's wrong, <laughs> right? And testing's not enough. You you know it's it's insufficient. Yeah, I certainly can't read and understand what's going on there. I mean, I think the biggest argument would be that people should be running multiple nodes with multiple implementations, especially if you're like a large service, like if you're like a Coinbase or something like that. Would you would you not agree with that? Um, well, it wouldn't hurt, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's an additional cost. Um, but, you know, most other nodes um, are just, I mean, all nodes are difficult to run and maintain, especially if you're running a service over them. It's really not designed for that um, what would you say it's designed for desktop app yeah that's how it was designed right and and it you know it threw on this json rpc api which is not designed for network use right it's not securable um it's not scalable uh it's not very highly performant but it's fine for wallet desktop use so people tend to build infrastructure over that companies and they make big investments in building for example, uh, database applications that suck all the data, suck the chain out of there. They just use it as a way to get the chain, right? A node on the network. Um, pull it all into some other store and then, and then query over that, you know. Um, so, it, you know, if it was designed for that, you, would, you wouldn't be doing that. Or miners, you know, build layers over it as well where um, they're really not doing anything unusual that they should need that complexity. Yeah. No, that's uh, a good segue into a concept that I want to talk about after hearing and expand upon after hearing it uh you talked about it on the crypto voices podcast this morning was the the idea of scaling versus I was on money. there this morning no well, i was listening to it this morning it was like a year and a half ago go check that out time warp bug maddie uh, maddie Majinxis, uh has the best voice uh in all of bitcoin and and does a hell of an interview and that was a good two-part series that uh eric did so i believe that came out january of last year but is the first time i heard this this uh framing of scaling versus layering um and and understanding that bitcoin at the protocol layer doesn't scale and, and being okay with that yeah bitcoin is perfectly non-scalable right it doesn't matter how much hard i mean so from a pro from a computer science standpoint or from an engineering standpoint i should say scalability is the idea that you you add more hardware you get a, a linear increase in throughput right well, there's no you can't add any more hardware to, to bitcoin 
to get more transactions through, if, if that's the aspect of scaling we're talking about, right? More transaction throughput. There's a, you know, it, it's, it's perfectly non-scalable, but you know, there's, there's, there's no limit to what you can do in terms of layering, in, ter in terms of throughput. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'll just say that there's, there's, you know, that's fairly unlimited. There's no limit to the amount of money you can push through in a transaction put it that way. If you can get together, you know, the money and in few enough outputs, you can push to push through as much money as, as you want up to the, you know, the coin limit. So um, that's, that's not really scalability either, right? It doesn't take any more hardware to do that. Um, so I, you call that like infinitely scalable, right? There's just no, no amount of hardware required. You can do as much as you want. So when we talk about scaling, it, it's an interesting question from an engineering standpoint. What, what are we really talking about? And those get into, to me, those are not engineering questions um, because the engineering is fairly straightforward, <laughs> right? It's either perfectly non-scalable and transaction throughput is infinitely scalable in, in, in monetary throughput. Um, when we talk about being able to run a node on a piece of hardware, that those are scalability questions, right? Like um, if, you, if you double the RAM, if you double the number of... Um, uh, cores that you have, you know, uh, CPUs that you have. Do you get a doubling imp improvement in terms of uh, speed of validation or speed of query? And that and LeBitcoin is designed for that. Uh, that was th those are some of the decisions that Amir made that that continue to um, be effective. The query speed on LeBitcoin is phenomenal. Um, constant time lookup data can be if you have enough memory, the entire chain just sits in memory, using up you know free memory um, with a memory mapped file. And the files are, you know, uh, indexed in such a way that no matter what you're looking for, you're going to get a constant time response. Pass through uh, a very low overhead uh, networking interface, zero MQ, much lower overhead than 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 uh, web-based interfaces, JSON stuff like that. So um, the query performance is extraordinary, and if you increase the memory, you get an increase in performance. You increase the number of threads you have available, you get a linear increase in performance up to some limit, which is always the case. Um, then something else becomes the bottleneck, and you try to make that linear, right? Right now, it's my when I do it, it um, it's my network. When I, I can connect to Bitcoin um, up to thousands of peers, and you know, download in parallel and store in parallel at the same time, but then my router crashes because it's just a home router, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the network becomes the limiting issue in your ability to do that kind of stuff. So it's kind of so that's that's the difference between scalability and and when we're talking about scalability from a conceptual standpoint we're, we're not talking about those things right we're talking about ultimately how useful can the money be and those are economic questions and i find those very interesting as well i think it's a combination of how useful can the money be for how many people or do you think it just needs to be useful for a small subset well the more people the money is useful for the more useful it is for any given person yeah right I mean, the more people that accept the money, the more useful the money is, the more value it has to you. Right. How do we get more people accepting this money? <laughs> How do we get that? Um, well, we get that because it's a v uh, the money has value to them, right? So more people accept it, the more valuable it becomes to other people, the more people accept it. So, But the money has a cost of use, and that is an offsetting factor. I'm not just talking about fees. Th those are potentially the most significant factor, but 
um, even now with essentially, you know, no, no fee issue at all, um, because of low usage, um, you have other offsetting factors. It's complex to work with. So, you know, we work on making that easier for people, making it easier for people to build applications that make it easier for people, right? Um, there's risk involved, right? You know, um, there's taxes, right? It's in the U.S., uh, Bitcoin is treated as a commodity tax-wise. So when the dollar drops and you, so and you spend your Bitcoin, you, you incur a tax, right? Capital gains tax. So that's, I mean, if the dollar is dropped because of monetary inflation, then that's signage transferred to Bitcoin. Not at the same rate, but, a, but, a, but a, in proportion, right? So um, if people want the advantages of Bitcoin, they have to be willing to do it if it's not legal, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, so getting more people to adopt it when it's very easy to make it um, criminal to use is, an, is itself a challenge, right? Yeah, and that's my biggest worry for Bitcoin in the long term is a combination of that and apathy, people not caring and not being strong-willed enough to uh, make illegal transactions that may not be unethical but are just defined as illegal by by the state sure uh, you know I, I use the term moral it's it's not a not a religious concept it's a, a philosophical concept um, so dealing with economics economics is kind of morally agnostic right it just doesn't doesn't it doesn't uh, it just describes how things at least we talk about rational economics Austrian economics um, it's a system of proof based on some simple axioms um, and it doesn't make a judgment about those things. Then you can add a judgment on, in terms of what is moral and what is not. And I, I do that with a very simple uh, principle, the non-aggression principle, um, which defines you know what people want to do or what they're f compelled to do. Um, and so, I, I d you know, to me, that that's the moral distinction. If people want to go you know buy their illegal drugs with their with their Bitcoin, that's not not you know. That's their choice. Um, they're not stealing from anybody. So, uh, but there's a limit to people's willingness and ability to do that. But ultimately, Bitcoin's security model doesn't provide any protection whatsoever against um, the state. Right? It's not. It'll, it helps people hide, but it doesn't stop the state from passing a law, <laughs> right? And uh, people have come up with all kinds of ways to try to rationalize that, especially people invested in white market. Bitcoin industry um, and you have to understand that that the Bitcoin security model is is entirely designed around people being able to operate um, anonymously so that they can hide from people trying to enforce law this law is trivially easy to create <laughs> um, and, and even if it's not that does it's irrelevant right it's if we wanted a money that was always lawful, we would just use the dollar, right? Because that, that is the money that has the set of laws applied to it that people have seemed to have accepted um, politically. So, and, I, you know, and, I'm, and I'm referring to pretty much every other money around the world, uh, state money. So you know, in order to get the advantages out of it that the security model provides, you have to be willing and able to use it when you want to, even if it's not allowed. Permissionless, right? That's the whole point of permissionless. So you can advocate for large-scale white market adoption, but in the end, that's kind of counterproductive because what does it do? It just creates 
a big target. <laughs> you know? what, what do you mean by large scale white market adoption? Well, what I, I just draw this. Uh, I just use the term white market, black market to draw the line between um, what is al- allowed, you know, and what is not allowed by some states. Always relative to some authority, right? So, um, if if you use the U.S. as the canonical example of the authority, and it's certainly not the only one that gets benefit from making its own money, but if you use that as an example, well, if the U.S. just passed a law that says, you know, accepting Bitcoin is money laundering. Um, including mining, which is accepting Bitcoin, right? Then, um, then Bitcoin itself, right? The doing of it, accepting it, is unlawful, and so it's black market activity. Now, you might be able to do it under certain conditions, right? You, you get, you know, you accept a little rule change that allows a state to create units of its own money. Now it has monetary policy. You accept a uh, restriction on what can be mined. Uh, you know, only approved transactions. Now you have censorship. And with those two changes, it's perfectly good state money. Um, and I I call that FedCoin, right? So if you're willing to accept FedCoin, you can remain in the white market, but otherwise you're a money launderer. And, and that's very easy to envision, right? I c- you can't predict it will happen, but either we stay in this honeymoon phase or we don't, and that's likely what happens. Um, and that likely won't work. I mean, people still keep doing it, some people. And so... Now you get into enforcement, which is the next logical phase. If it's important enough, we'll start enforcing. And Bitcoin has this inherent weakness that no other thing has, that it can be, uh, compliance can be enforced from one point on the earth most effectively, right, through, through uh, mining uh, majority. So um, Bitcoin has unique advantages. It has unique disadvantages. It's the only thing, it's the only thing in, the, in, the, in the world that when you transfer it to somebody else, you you pay a fee that's a function not of what you're transferring but what how many other people are doing the same thing <laughs> right that's very unique and it's also very unique in the fact that it can be controlled from one point on the earth um, uh, with sufficient um, capital and the way that we would beat the state in this scenario would be to to pay higher fees to yeah, somebody has to somebody has to pay for higher hash power to overcome the sensor, right? And the only way that that happens um, econ- in an economical rash- economically rational way is the people who are trying to transact, who, who have value in getting those transactions through, pay more to get them through. Um, you know, uh, economically irrational would be the idea that people just donate their money to this, you know, donate more tax, right? You're already paying the tax for the hash power uh, that's offsetting the, the higher fees, but now you donate more tax to to pay for other people to transact. Yeah, possible, certainly would happen to some extent, but it's not economically rational, therefore not provable. So I, I think really the only way, and the reason Bitcoin has a censorship resistance property is because when fees don't, when transactions don't get confirmed, people raise their fees. And as they raise their fees, it incents more hash power, people to, to accept them unlawfully and, uh, and potentially uh, preventing or overcoming a, um, a censor with hash power. Are you optimistic about uh your fellow humans uh having the will to to transact uh illegally yeah but but uh certainly or I, I wouldn't work on it um and but it's not knowable right it's 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 an assumption we make right like it's it's the axiom that i add to the to the to the axiomatic system that i call crypto economics right it's it's uh you know um, Bitcoin, which I, which I consider anything that conforms to the security model that Satoshi laid out, which is basically three principles, which I call crypto dynamic principles, the forces that make the crypto 
you know, work. Anything that conforms to those, I consider Bitcoin. And um, there's an, th these are based, these principles are based on math, probability theory, which is not math, um, and economic theory, rational economic theory. And those are all axiomatic systems, right? There's some assumptions, they're very simple. If you accept those assumptions, you can make, you can prove things, even mathematics. Um, but Bitcoin has one additional assumption, which is that that's possible, right? It's possible for people to, to continue to use it in the face of, you know, the state. Um, but it's not provable because value is subjective. We don't know how much value people will place in their getting their transactions confirmed or how much value the state will place in preventing it or how much people will resist the taxation required to do it. But it's not as much it's not as expensive as people assume, right? It's not the total amount of hash power. Mining's profitable. Being a majority miner is even more profitable. It's the most profitable way to mine um, because of the benefit, the advantages. There's two, ad two advantages to being a majority miner. You have lo lowest variance and you have um, lowest latency. So you, you could be a majority hash power miner at something less certainly than majority hash rate. Um, and so, and it's happened, right? People can get to that level and be perfectly profitable. So that's not a cost, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an investment that returns. It's the the cost comes when when that when that censor when that fifty one percent miner starts censoring. Up until that point, nobody cares, right? <laughs> it's fine, right? But but when it starts censoring, now transactions aren't getting through, and the and the fees have to rise. So the the difference between the kind of market transaction fee that's being accepted and the ones that aren't being accepted. They call that the fee premium. That difference is what is securing the money. It was preventing the censor, right? And or not. And that's much smaller than the cost of total hash, you know, energy, hash rate consumption and energy and stuff. It's very, you know, could be, could be uh, so trivial that it can't, people aren't willing, it, people may not be willing to pay enough, right? To overcome the censor. It's hard to say. Um, but we assume it's possible. Yeah, it's that's um, as as a cheerleader here, and somebody who likes to talk optimistically about the future of Bitcoin. It's always sobering to, to put these uh, scenarios into perspective, and I think that's what I love most about uh, the Bitcoin Wiki is your your section on crypto economics. I feel like you're trying to educate people about again to think about Bitcoin rationally and understand its limitations very, very uh, clearly. Yeah, it's become that. It started out as a way just for me to put my thoughts down on paper so they would stop floating around in my head and then, uh, or to just stop repeatedly responding in the same, to the same questions at, you know, Twitter speed. So, um, but it, you know, just a couple topics originally and just grew with, I did 93 yesterday. <laughs> 93rd. Congrats. <laughs> But again, it's just stuff floating around my head and I can't describe it very well until I write it and then I write it and I find, maybe sometimes I find things that aren't quite right or somebody points out something that's not quite right. I've had uh, James Chang, who you had on here recently, um, um, was reviewing my crypto economics wiki and found uh, two errors, you know, real errors. And, and, uh, and I, the, the consequence was unchanged, changed, but the argument was, was not correct. And, and it led to a much better argument and uh, clarifications. And, uh, you know, we had a good talk about that yesterday. So it helps getting it out there, too, to get peer review. Um, but, I, but now it's become like it is interesting to educate people 
on things um, because they want to know. And there's just not a lot of um, more objective, more rational analysis of these things out there. Yeah, and I think, I forget which podcast it was I listened to this morning, but you were, um, what exactly were you saying that, uh, shit, I lost my train of thought here, that, um, we're talking about getting information out there for people. Yeah, getting it out there for people, but, uh, I forget exactly, but that's one thing, just forgot that train of thought, on to the next one, educating people, I think that's important, and that's what it that's what you're saying. Like people don't care. Uh, you said at the beginning of this conversation, like if why why hasn't the world coalesced on a free money uh, that they exist? Like gold exists, silver exists. Like if they we really cared about it, why haven't we coalesced on a on a free free market money right now? Why aren't we coalesced around a free market money? And I think it's partly because of a lack of education. People really don't understand what money is, and that's why. I think your crypto economics page. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it, it's it's a hard topic. I mean, money is I mean, economics is one thing. Money is like all of that and more, you know. Yeah. And um, in one, in some sense, it's very simple. In other other ways, it's very complex. And you know, it's it, it took me a long time to get to the point where I felt like I I really understood it. And now I've gotten to the point where I think I find I tend to f- say tend. I found a errors in what people consider settled Austrian economics. And I, you know, there's, there's, it's a hard topic. And, um, what are some examples of these errors? Well, uh, the, the simplest one, and, and, and it's, um, it, it's, um, easier to explain. So I'll use a simpler one before at first, and it's not quite as important, but the Mises is reg- regression theorem. Right, so I look at regression theorem, and I'm like, well, it just doesn't really make sense to me on its face. See, if you look at uh, uh, Austrian, his Austrian economics is based on rationality, right? It's an axiomatic system. He's very clear about that. It's not based on observation, and it accepts the idea that value is subjective, which is not an axiom. It's an exclusion of everything that we can't know, right? So you have the you have the axiom of human action, and you have the axiom of time preference, and then you have this exclusion of objective value. Um, and, and so from that, we should be able to derive this regression theorem. And it was an attempt to settle the, uh, you know, the circularity problem and wh- where does the value of money come from? And it tended to be circular. And Mises said, well, no, it's because, you know, w- we value money today because what we were able to obtain yesterday, we remember there's, even though value is subjective, there's just some aspect of it that's objectively from previous use, Right. So if you can accept that, which is not really provable, <laughs> right? It, it's, it's a contradiction of the subjective theory of value. You then regress back and you, you, s- you see this infinite regression, right? And yesterday, the day before. And, and you get to the point where, where the money was used in barter. And, well, why did it have barter value? You, you know, so you, re- you keep regressing back to the point where it had use value, you know? And he's very s- explicit. He says industrial use value, right? This was a commodity that people held and they used in production and they made these things and they and then they you know then it progressed to barter and then it progressed to money and he's he's really in 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 a in a a lot of passages he's really just trying to find ways to condemn state money right which may have evolved from that but had no use has no use value which is what a fiat is which by the way bitcoin has no use value so it's also fiat (laughs) um that's literally what it means right it's just 
it doesn't have any use aside from money, not any material use, right? So he's trying to he's trying to regress back and then has to terminate this regression, right, at use value. But that's irrational, right? How did it get use value? How how did that come about? Somebody had to at some point look at this thing and go, I think I can use that for something. It was entirely subjective, right? Like it could no way to remember it from the day before. So the original use of the thing that he's regressed back to was entirely subjective, which implies right, a contradiction. He's saying that it can't be money unless it evolved from objective use, right? Mm -hmm. But obviously it, ca it, it had to evolve from subjective use originally, and therefore anything could be money, <laughs> right? And so basically it, it, the, the, the theorem doesn't make any sense. Anything can be money. Sato I mean, Satoshi decided he wanted to make a money, made a money, and on day one it was a money. Right, he was very clear about that. But you know, so there's really no reason for this regression theorem except to try to condemn state money. But that you you can condemn that rationally in a number of ways that don't have this logical error, right? Yeah, but there's, uh, I agree, completely. But then the concept that we've been talking a lot more recently, in the last few months, uh, with some guests, is the intersubjectivity of money. So like some monetary goods have have better. Uh, characteristics of fulfilling the the use of a of a monetary well, good. Certain certain commodities have better monetary use than others, right? You know, there's a long list of or a short list, I guess, of useful properties of money. Um, you know, paper money has useful properties that that commodity monies don't. For example, it doesn't decay, right? You just replace it with a new one, and you know, so you don't have the coin clipping problem. You know, other things like that. It's funny people always, people tend to say that dollars are more portable than gold, which I think is kind of funny because if you try to move a billion dollars in gold versus a billion dollars in $100 bills, the biggest bill, you look at the volume and the weight, <laughs> it's not even close, right? <laughs> you got pallets of these, these $100 bills, right, um, that weigh much more than the gold. So I always find that curious as to why people say it's more portable. Um, you think they're arguing from like a more portable via the wiring system that exists? or The wiring? Like well, wiring money. Well, that's not money that's credit yeah so you know uh we're just talking about move settlement right you move money around between banks internationally it's actually physically moved right dollars do actually you know provide the money for the existing financial system and um anyway it's just an interesting uh, observation i guess about yeah. portability <laughs> You said Bitcoin has no use value, but what about the ability to pay fees to to get transactions? Or is that well, that's that's the use of the money, right? But mm -hmm. the money has so Bitcoin does have marginal use value. I mean, depending on some people might think it's really important, but you can use it for time stamping, right? Mm -hmm. Paper money has marginal use value. You can burn it for energy. So so it's not there's there's never an absolute. These are conceptual distinctions, right? So generally, you consider gold not a fiat because it has use value that's more significant, right? It can be used for all kinds of interesting things. Um, whereas fiat, you know, people don't generally burn it for heat, but they might if they had to. Sometimes they roll it up and use it for a straw, you know. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> there, is <laughs> there are definitely uses. Um, and Bitcoin does have some of that as well. But, but we, we, consider, um, we consider those to be fairly marginal. And so primarily dollars are fiat. They have no you know, important use value and, and Bitcoin is the same thing. The difference between Bitcoin, so, so before Bitcoin, there was no other fiat than state money. So people get in the habit of referring to, you know, an, an, an unbacked piece of paper as fiat and then they're hesitant to apply that same term to Bitcoin because it's different. But it, it is different. It's not monopoly money, 
right? Monopoly meaning the production of it is not controlled by um, any counterfeiting laws, monopoly production. So when you have monopoly production, you can charge any price you want or any price that the market will bear. So you can obtain a price premium, which is what signerage is, right? Bitcoin doesn't have, unless it's under a successful censorship attack, it doesn't have monopoly production. Therefore, the cost of producing it equals the value to the miner of uh, what they obtain. The dollar costs about 5.5 cents for, one for a $1 bill. The treasury charges the Fed that amount. The difference, right, that's signerage. Um, and then that's only possible because nobody else can make them, right? If everybody could make dollars, that, that would the price of the dollar, the purchasing power of the dollar could come down to about 5.5 <laughs> cents or less, right? Um, but the problem is now portability. You'd have to carry around way too many of them and it wouldn't be very useful. But it would be then a perfectly, it would be a commodity money at that point, right? I'm still, because I've been f following your, your writing around Bitcoin as fiat too. But, and so what is your definition of fiat? Is it something that's decree decreed? No, uh, so this is something I actually had to look up and study for a bit because that's what I assumed, right? Yeah. A long while back, it's like the value is decreed. That's not what, that's not what declared by fiat actually meant. It meant it was declared as a money. The value is driven by the market. Um, so what fiat, so th there was, because there was no Bitcoin, there was no alternative, they tended to go hand in hand, the, um, the ability to declare any value. It's not declaring, right? You're just restricting supply so that you can raise the price through monopoly. Um, so that's the effect of fiat money when it's controlled by the state, which was the only way to have a fiat money before Bitcoin. So that went hand in hand, but fiat actually meant declared to be a money. It did evolve as a money. It was, you know, somebody had to declare it and control it for it to work. S but what it really means is it has no use value. That's the, that's the economic definition of fiat. And when you look at Bitcoin, at this to the same type of degree, it has no use value. It's, it's a money. And um, the difference, again, is that it's not, its production is not monopolized. Anybody can go out and mine, the mine it. And so, therefore, you have competition for mining, which basically brings profit of mining down to the cost of capital or return on money to the cost of capital. So there's nothing wrong with that, you know, and I, I tend not to emphasize it because people, people weird out on, you know, but, 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 but you get, you get interesting consequences from using the right concepts in the right terms. Right. So I, I, I wrote a money taxonomy topic, you know, commodity money, um, fiat, et cetera, but you have to draw a distinction between Bitcoin and state money if they're both fiat. And that distinction is simply monopoly, monopoly on the production. Um, and then you can, you know, over time come to other conclusions like, well, is monopoly production of Bitcoin possible? And this is actually a topic that I wrote up yesterday. Um, you, you probably heard um, Nick Szabo's uh, term unforgeable cost. Costliness. Costliness, yeah. yeah. I call it proof of cost. Mm -hmm. right? Unforgeable means it's provable. Um, and costliness is cost. So you have proof of cost, right? The Bitcoin is a proof that the cost was market-driven, right? But that's only if it's not under a monopoly control, <laughs> right? Once it's under monopoly control, you could charge as much in fees as you want and not put them on chain even, right? They can be completely invisible and therefore extract a premium from producing the money or the transactions or the blocks, right? And so you could achieve the same result um, sign you rich through the money um, 
so the, what's the proof telling you? It's not telling you that, right? It's not there's no proof of the cost of producing Bitcoin. There's only proof of work. That's not even proof of energy. Energy costs vary, right? Or, or, or the amount of energy efficiency to produce the computations necessary to prove the work varies somewhat. So you really, Satoshi, you know, used the right term, right? Work, it's just proving that probabilistically these number of computations were performed. It's not proof of cost. Um, so anyway, it was, it was important to point that out because, but what that led to, and that's again goes back to the proper understanding of the difference between monopoly money and, and market money, meaning fiat versus Bitcoin, uh, um, is, is in the monopoly. And then you look at it closely and you realize, well, what if Bitcoin could be monopolized? And then that's what led me to the conclusion that, yeah, it could be. Just, you know, you, so if the fees are on chain, Right, any miner can go out and capture those fees, and you, everybody assumes that all the money that a miner's making is on chain. But there's absolutely no reason it has to be. What right? do you mean by that? Uh, so, um, when people pay fees in transactions to miners, that achieves um, anonymity. Right, any miner can grab the fees without knowing who the transactor is. But it's not necessary. It's just beneficial. <laughs> right. So as as a, and we know miners do this. Right. They make arrangements with. We saw it publicly during the fee crisis. They were accepting yeah, credit yeah. card payments to boost fees and stuff. Like Absolutely. That. Really? So, yeah. so these the but you have to understand that's what I that's what I call side fees. That doesn't have any impact on on actual people using the money. It doesn't change the amount of money the miner makes. A miner can put. If a miner mines his own transaction, he can put any fee in the block that he wants for that transaction. It has no impact on his return. Put a huge fee, just capture it back, right? Put zero fee, get it on the side, makes no difference. He's still using the same amount of energy and netting the same amount of money, right? So the fees tend to be useful and interesting, but they're not proof of the amount of money that the miner's making. So we get to that situation where fees start to matter and people start doing these things. Well, that actually, you know, that... I actually wrote about that a while ago. I mean, coming up with fee arrangements, so say you're Coinbase or somebody, right? You make a fee arrangement with some miner. We're well actually raising the cost of getting your transactions mined um, because, you know, you're directing them towards this one miner. So they're taking longer to get confirmed, right? You, you've, I, 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 don't, I actually don't remember all the details, but there's, a, there's, a several, there's several things that add to your cost, right? You're better off just letting the market... Um, handle the transactions and pay the market fee because you're going to pay at least the market fee anyway either that or the miners donating to you or you're donating to the miner right so you have this inefficiency um, but it's hard to know what the market fee is if it's not on the chain right so you just keep raising your fee until somebody takes it but that's how that's how business works right you walk into a store and you want to buy something you, you make an on a lot of parts of the world you just make an offer until both parties agree and then you then you then you settle so without without the fee being without the true fee the true reward to the miner being fully reflected in the chain how do you know how much it's actually costing to produce the block you don't and you know you could cer certainly see a system where you have this kind of uh, sensor demanding people get authorization to confirm right and that authorization comes with the fee that you pay you know some somehow else <coughs> and you wouldn't see that um, and other miners wouldn't be able to <laughs> potentially pick it up in those transactions. And does this play also into your theory of like uh, waste heat? Um, like, could that play into this scenario too, where they're where they're uh, profiting from the waste heat uh, produced by the miners or the generators running the miners? I I, I would 
offhand, I don't have a way to connect that to what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I did write one or two topics on that a while ago, and I got some good input from some from some, some waste miner producers, and uh, you know, positive. I think I think we have it right, but in the end, uh, so just just comment on waste energy mining. I mean, what you're doing is you're you're not you're not reducing the amount of energy consumed, right? Be, y y you know, you're using a different source, so presumably the same amount, but by removing that. Removing the consumption, say you take all Bitcoin mining and you move it to waste energy mining, stuff that would just be vented, right? So while it's still being consumed, it's either being vented or it's being turned into ones and zeros, but it's still being consumed. So, uh, but now you have this less, less being um, demanded in the market for, you know, marketable energy. Well, lower demand, um, you're going to reduce the cost, right? Which is now going to increase demand. So you're probably, you know, because, because energy is a, is a factor in production of everything. So um, likely the going price of energy main maintains itself pretty, pretty constant uh, over time, right? So you, you move everybody else somewhere else and now more energy gets consumed. So what happens is there's greater wealth, right? More, more stuff is getting produced than before for the same amount of energy being consumed. So yeah, you're tapping into energy source and um, you know, the same amount of energy is being consumed and people are getting wealthier. Great. Yeah. Um, but that that doesn't pot, uh, that doesn't tie into like the profit of like so that's tech yeah so there's not like a fee off chain fee that they're they're also getting but it is like a different profit. Uh, well, so if you can if you can tap a che cheaper energy source than your competitors, now you can make a greater profit, and therefore the uh, opportunity cost now accrues to your competitors, and they move to that same energy source. And you know people recognize this is this is a transitional. Um, advantage you move move there take advantage of it everybody else eventually has to move there um, or the reduction in cost of the primary marketable source of energy now benefits your competitors right your cost is going to start going up people start charging you for this energy right why wouldn't they right it's now got demand and and the cost of the market energy is going down because supplies uh, demand is being removed from it so eventually it, it equals out right this is um, but there's there's this entrepreneurial opportunity to go and take advantage of it in the interim yeah do you do you think that that's a factor that will help distribute mining long term because i i would imagine it's hard to find you know the cheapest energy in the world all in one place for the amount of energy capacity that bitcoin's going to need right uh well you know, the more more places you can find energy the more highly distributed you know in small scale bitcoin mining can be presumably um I mean, I don't know if what we're talking about is actually more distributed from the sense of being able to hide, which is what we're really talking about, right? I can run a mine and it's illegal to mine. Can I do it hiding, you know, next to some, you know, oil well? Well, uh, I would say maybe. like the big one is excess hydro, right? This is where a lot of the focus has been um, because during the, during the downtimes of, of energy consumption around these dams, yeah. uh, the price of electricity goes down tremendously. Uh, but they all have capacity issues in different areas, right? Yep. So it would naturally distribute around the world uh, because you can't power all the miners just yeah. at one dam. Well, the problem with hydro is it's not portable. So, you know, I mean, their dams tend to be fairly large and it's at least the ones you're going to run a Bitcoin mine off of excess hydropower. Uh, so they don't hide very well. But the other problem with um, we call renewables, right? Uh, solar, hydro, wind, is that the, the, the capital cost 
of your mining hardware start, start to way outseed, way exceed your energy advantage because of intermittency of the power. I looked at this, you know, pretty closely a while ago. It just didn't make sense. If you can't have 24-7 power, you're, you're, you're struggling. Yeah, that's what uh, James Chang and I actually talked about for a little bit. He, he was big in the solar industry and optimistic at one point, but optimistic about it at one point. But uh, you can have a stretch of cloudy days, a, s- a stretch yeah. of windless days. And yeah, I have a good friend who's big in the wind industry, um, did a wind startup, sold it to Con Ed or something. You know, it was big billion-dollar stuff. And very excited about the fact that we can get negative energy cost, right? You can actually get energy that they pay you to take um, certain times of the day. And it sounds very exciting to a Bitcoiner, but when you look at the, the, the times that you get it and the amount of idle time you have on your, your hardware, you realize that the depreciation of your hardware is rapid enough to far outweigh the advantage of even free or negative cost energy. But yes. shouldn't, shouldn't that improve over time as well, right? ASIC lifestyle. Uh, Modification of ASICs and stuff. Well, that's based on the assumption that we reach some kind of limit in yeah in computational speed, which in human history has not happened, (laughs) right? (laughs) And um, if you've read, there's a paper on it. It's very, very theoretical uh, paper that uh, way beyond my ability to fully understand. But um, the thermodynamic limit of computing power, and that's basically the you know once once you've reached this limit, it's not possible to get any smarter. Uh, and, it, and it does exist. It's very interesting. It has to do with, you know, s- speed of light and distance and, and uh, computational uh, ability as a consequence of that. And, okay, so we're, we're, we're not even close to that, right? We're, we're so, yeah, there may not be innovations that we see that are going to improve computation, but I think it's a fairly reasonable assumption to, to assume that we'll keep moving towards that theoretical limit over time as we have throughout the entirety of human history. Um, so... Yeah, if if nobody could make anything that went any faster, eventually, you know, the, the 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 hardware that does the computations would just get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and um, you know, in terms of real cost, and yeah, that would your depreciation of your hardware would start to become less important in relation to the cost of your energy. Right now, it's a major factor. Um, so yeah, ASICs are akin to driving a car off a car dealership lot; they start depreciating right away. Is that fair to say? <laughs> I don't know if it's quite the same because that's just like this this cliff immediately, right? It's more of a continuous, right, uh, mm-hmm. depreciation, but it is pretty rapid. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I'm not. A mi- I did a little bit of mining years ago, but um, it, it's just a period of a, I think a couple of years where you go from you know the full cost down to zero. Um, you know, and there are times when you can bring it back online, uh, becomes worth it. But yeah, that's a that's a that's a very prohibitive thing, I think, in terms of renewables now, yeah. um, and for probably ever. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, if you could compute with no hardware cost, then yeah, che- cheaper energy is all that matters. But there's, and it's not just hardware cost. We use that as a kind of a summing up of all of the costs aside from the pure energy costs of mining. And there's, there's security, and there's network, and you know, there's also the cost of latency and, and uh, variance um, that are kind of inherent in the protocol. Um, but but the other costs, you know, are, are not immaterial, um, and people kind of figured this out. Um, but the more sources you can tap and the more, you know, s- the smaller you can make your minds, the better it is in terms of security uh, at a system level. Yeah. That just makes sense, right? And I think it's the economics of the 
uh, stranded energy alone, like I think it makes sense that Bitcoin mining will be distributed in the future. But it's unknowable right now. Um, I think uh, I think once you get oil producers to sort of realize this, that's one thing that sort of fascinated me a decade in is that oil producers don't sort of realize this this uh, additional monetization they can have via Bitcoin mining if they were. To, to right. If you're way. sitting on an oil hoard, right, and you're just waiting for the price to get where you think it's going to be optimal for you to sell it, you know, you're de- you're that's depreciating, right? There's a cost for storing it like anything else, and there's an opportunity cost that accumulates over time for not having the capital invested in, you know, in earning interest um, in some production. So it's just sitting there as inventory, and and at some point it makes sense to to convert it to capital and and uh, you know. So, but I, I, you know, I haven't done the math on, on what those costs and trade-offs are for people that store, you know, huge volumes of oil, you know, I don't know. Um, let's see what I got here. Yeah. So what do you think we need to focus on right now? Like, uh, as people building, building on Bitcoin, like what, what is most imperative in your mind to, to fortify? Like we had the, the Erebus attack. Vector was uh, uh, brought to the f- brought to people's consciousness a few weeks ago, where ISPs can sort of uh, just the way that in Bitcoin Core, the way that nodes connect with each other, an ISP can attack and partition off particular nodes if they wanted to, and that seems like a pretty big attack vector. But what do you think we need to focus on as as a network right now? I, I think the most important aspect that that we need to resolve is privacy. Um, you know, Bitcoin is very transparent and that's problematic if you you know if you envision using it in the way it's envisioned uh working <laughs> so um i always applaud the efforts of you know core devs that are working on real privacy technology you know um mixing only goes so far not far enough and um there's there's issues with you know true anonymity as well inflation <laughs> things like that right provability so uh, those are hard problems, but uh, I'm hopeful that they are surmountable problems and we can get, m- you know, better privacy in terms of uh, delinking uh, transactions or, un- you know, not having them visibly linked. What um, do you th- I think that's the most, most important issue in Bitcoin. What do you think that's something that could be on the horizon that could uh, contribute to that? Are you like, interested in Schnorr signatures? It's all interesting, and I, you know, I, I, I tend. I mentioned before online here that uh, I, I tend not to comment on too much on the specifics of things that I haven't written myself. I just don't know them well enough to be able to make an informed judgment. But um, from what from what I've seen, you know, uh, there's there's good work, and it makes sense. And um, I'm hopeful that we'll make enough progress to be able to have that you know, delinking capability, but in terms of what's going to make it happen, I'm not, it's not entirely clear to me yet. And once, once something does start to, you know, look effective and working and people are using it, then, you know, we'll bring it into the Bitcoin, um, and make it, um, try to, try to make it easier for people to use. You know? And then, uh, another thing you were, you were talking about before we hit record here, did you say you, you don't believe Bitcoin scarce? Um, no, that's not really um, what I what I mean. Um, what I mean is that people overblow the importance of scarcity. Like okay. th- value comes from scarcity. Well, th- there's two concepts of scarcity in economics. There's property, all of which is scarce. Right? It has 
it's not Im, Im, you know infinitely available at no cost to retrieve right but it's not a relative thing it's just ab an absolute concept it's either scarce or it isn't right and anything that we consider property has to have that aspect otherwise it's just not property it's freely freely given nature given as the austrians would say um and then there's scarcity as it's used um kind of generally in uh in discussion on you know what the markets are doing you know so that's just a that's really just a euphemism for price right there's more available on the market there's less available on the market there's more demand for it there's less demand for it so as demand increases you know it becomes more scarce <laughs> and as supply increases it becomes less scarce but those are relative terms. There's no absolute scarcity in any of those things. Just gold doesn't have absolute scarcity, right? It just changes in price because demand and supply vary. Um, so the importance of, you know, scarcity is important for something to be property. But the idea that something is better at being a money because it has higher scarcity is not even a rational statement. It doesn't make any sense. And I think, so I was mentioning a um, couple errors in Austrian economics earlier. And, and I think maybe one of these uh, propagates from um, an error that persists, uh, that gold is inflationary. Or that Bitcoin's inflationary uh, under, the, under the issuance schedule, right? So it's kind of, a, you know, it's technical economics speak. But basically, the money relation, which is what we're talking about when we talk about supply inflation right this is really what we're talking about and austrians refer to this as the money relation the the amount uh, the number of units of the money right whatever that however that's described ounces of gold if you want um in proportion to the goods demanded in the money right which is equivalent to saying demand for the money right i need the money so i can get the goods so you have a certain amount of money, you have a certain amount of demand for goods in the money, that ratio is the money relation. And if that ratio doesn't change, right, either through a change in supply of the money or change in demand for goods in the money, then, then it's, it's kind of just a tautology. The, ra the ratio hasn't changed. In other words, there's no, there's, no there's no inflation as a consequence of either of those things, right? There could be inflation for other, other reasons that prices change, right? But not as a consequence of either increasing the supply of money um, or say changing demand for goods, right? So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the importance of, of scarcity. And it's very clear, you know, that um, it, it, the money relation changes when there's say a, an introduction of supply. So we look at the dollar and you know, we introduce a trillion dollars um, at 94.5, you know, cent percent discount. It's not quite that because the $100 bills have a different cost. But, you know, we introduce this supply with a very tiny um, consumption of goods to produce the supply. So that changes the money relation. But when you mine gold or when you make any money in a competitive market, one that's not monopoly controlled, the competition the, the 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 fact of competition ensures that you consume as much in goods as you produce in money right the, the gold miner buys consumes destroys you know depreciates his property in producing the gold and that's a trade he's traded one for the other to him they're worth i mean it's worth the trade right so in in austrian economics that's pretty well recognized but at the same time there's a contradiction because that introduction of gold is seen as inflationary which it's not because the money relation is unchanged when you 
as soon as you remove those goods, you destroy them, right, in the production of the gold, the miner doesn't have them anymore. And he gets the gold and now has to go buy them. So now the demand for the goods, the goods have been reduced, but now they're increased again with the money, right? So the, the money relation remains unchanged in a market-supplied money. So the error that the introduction of that gold is inflationary propagates into other things like Bitcoin. Now, we introduce more Bitcoin. It's inflationary. No, it's not. It doesn't change the money relation at all. The miner has consumed as much goods that were demanded in the money as he has produced in money. And then he goes and spends that money to get the goods that he no longer has, right? That's so new demand. So creation of a market money is not inflationary. And so it doesn't matter if the supply of it is fixed or not, right? <laughs> the, the creation of, um, well, the cap is ultimate, ultimately exists. As long as you're creating more Bitcoin, it's, you're not changing the money relation at all. You're creating more gold, you're not changing the money relation at all. So, and that's true for all goods. You create more goods, you've destroyed as much in producing the goods as you've created, right? Including the opportunity cost that the goods would have provided for you, which is where the return, the profit, comes from, right? Um, that's the amount that the producer makes, is the opportunity cost that he spent by destroying those goods. So, yeah, I know I'm getting all the technical about economics, but this idea that, like, there's more or less scarcity, um, it just doesn't make any sense, right? That it doesn't matter how much there is or that more is being produced. What matters is that it's produced by a market versus monopoly controlled. But how's it not inflationary if I, if there were ever to be more Bitcoin issued than the 21 million that are now defined in the protocol, how's that not inflationary? It costs you as much to make the new Bitcoin as you get in Bitcoin. That cost is destruction of demand of is destruction of goods that were demanded in the money. Right? But as that's for the miners, right? But what about like just somebody? So uh, those mi those miners have destroyed. So say they make a hundred thousand dollar block. Mm -hmm. Sorry for using dollars, but and they've destroyed a hundred thousand dollars in their own capital to make that block, right? That that capital that 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 was capital that was demanded in the money, right? Now there's now there's less of that capital demanded in the money, right? So I'm sorry. Now there's an equivalent amount because once they once they obtain the hundred thousand dollar block, what do they what do they do with it, right? Eventually, that that money becomes demand for the goods that they no longer have that they spent. They get their investment back, right? So that's new demand for stuff that's been destroyed, right? It doesn't exist anymore. The, so the money relation does not change, and this is why you observe gold having a fairly constant purchasing power over time, despite continual inflation of the money, right? Not of the money, um, not a net change to the money relation. So it nets out over time. It nets out instantly. Yeah. Right? I mean, I have to go and, and, and take my own capital and destroy it in order to make anything, and then I get back what I destroyed. No change to the ratio. Right? And if you, that is how this theory about inflation, I, I, that is what it means. It's, has, it's the money relation, right? So it's very easy to show that the money relation doesn't change when you produce new goods. Right? It doesn't take anything from anybody. The, the miner destroys his own property and produces some new property of the same value to him. Right? Could you argue that it takes the purchasing power of other Bitcoin holders? Or no, that, but that's the, that's exactly the point, right? It doesn't. That's what purchasing power is. It's the it's the ra purchasing power of a money is this ratio of the amount of money to the goods demanded in the money, right? So I if that ratio doesn't change, you can't say that the inflation, the the creation of new money, is causing a loss of purchasing power because the purchasing power 
definition has not changed at all. Right. And again, we can observe this over long periods of time with gold. Now, the, the production of gold is not controlled by some inherent property of gold. It's controlled by demand for it, right? More demand, more supply. And so people look at gold and say, well, it's, you know, only grows at about 2 3% per year, something like that, 1% to 3% per year. Well, okay, so if you look at the supply of goods in the world that exist growing over time, we call that growth, capital growth. Capital growth is a consequence of what? Really time preference. So interest, you earn, what the products you make and sell, right? Those products that get sold, that's the return on your investment. That is the interest, right? The new products. So interest is the growth, of, is the creation of new stuff, right? But while you're, while you're making this new stuff, you're destroying old stuff, all the stuff that exists depreciates. The depreciation rate for stuff globally you know, is a, is a fairly consistent number, right? If people get poor, they tend to make things last longer, but stuff depreciates at a certain rate. Stuff is produced at a certain rate, the interest rate, around 10% historically, right? So we have a depreciation that's, say, around 6 7%, depending on what, you know, buildings depreciate at maybe 4 or 5%, factories maybe 7 8%, food, you know, 100%. So, so this is, there's a, but there's this constant depreciation of everything that exists, and there's this constant production of new things. What's the difference between that? That's growth. That's what remains, you know, that's the, that's the net accumulation of stuff over time, and that tends to be around 2 3%. So this growth of stuff demanded in the money, right, causes an, an, an increase in the amount of money. Otherwise, money would become infinitely profitable to make, right? And a lot of opportunity cost for not mining it. So, yeah, gold gets produced at the rate of economic growth. Not surprising. But there's a difference there with gold total supply and Bitcoin total supply and, and, and how it's how it's provable how much there is. Right. Like because there's no way to actually tell how much gold there is in the world or the universe or whatever you want to measure that on. So we're talking specifically about creation of new Bitcoin and creation of new gold. When you stop creating new Bitcoin, you have a different situation. Right. I'm talking about the new the introduction of new units works just like with gold. Right. It doesn't right. cause a change in purchasing power because it doesn't cause a change in the money relation. But then if you stop producing it, so in other words, if it got more, if, it, if, if there was more and more goods demanded in the money all the time, the price of the cost and therefore the value of producing new units goes up with that. If that goes down, the same thing happens, right? It becomes cheaper. To, so you're always producing it at, at, a, at a cost that doesn't change the money relation. But when you stop being able to produce it, now you can produce none, what happens? Well, more and more goods are demanded in the money and the money doesn't increase, right? What you have is an, an increase in the purchasing power of the money. It changed the money relation. So this is a different situation when Bitcoin transitions into this no more being produced, right? But, but what's causing that increase in demand for goods and the money? If Bitcoin was the only money, it would be growth, right? And growth is around 2 to 3% per year. And it's a consequence of people investing in production, not holding, right? <laughs> Actually getting interest from their, from their money. So in that sense... I mean, a deflationary money in this sense, right, has never existed before. Deflationary anything has never existed before, and it has certain consequences that people don't really look at very closely. Um, the consequence, so, so you can imagine, say, uh, you have this monetization period where people stop using one money, start using another, like what's happening with Bitcoin, right? They use one instead of the other. So now more and more goods are getting demanded in the money. The money is appreciating in purchasing power as a consequence of that, Right, and it's still being produced at no change in purchasing power, and then it stops and it continues to get monetized. Right, but what 
there's a, a and as a result, you're going to have increase in purchasing power as long as that monetization continues. But then you hit another limit, which again is unique to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is unique in more than one way, more than fixed supply. It's unique in that it has fees and a fixed rate of transaction. And that has consequences which gold doesn't have, right? Nothing else has. Um, so while you, can, while you can expect a growth rate of appreciation of the purchasing power, that also produces a limit to the usability of the money, right? Because some transactions will just be too small to send? Or well, they are already. Yeah. Right? We call it dust. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it's an interesting idea. Like, so um, the proper analogy, when you look at gold, you don't look at it as, okay, the smallest transactable unit of gold is the atom. Right? We never use that term. We use dust. But in Bitcoin, people tend to look at divisibility as the Satoshi. The Satoshi is the atom, right? It's not the divisibility limit. The divisibility limit is dust, just like it is with gold. You can't divide, you can't spend it on something if it's below that limit. That limit, like gold, is not a hard and fast number, right? It's more of, it becomes unusable at some point, right? So if the dust limit is, I don't know, you know, like, if the dust limit becomes the point where you, you can't buy coffee anymore, well maybe some people would, some people wouldn't, but it's right there on that, that line, right? But then it moves up. Now you can't buy a car anymore. Now you can't buy a business anymore, right? You, 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 you're excluding all of the transactability, all the things that could be demanded in the money below that level, just like gold, right? You, you can't transact those things in gold. So now you can aggregate transactions, right? Start layering, like happens with gold, happen with gold, right? But the interesting thing about gold is that dust limit doesn't tend to move because as more demand accrues in the for the money, more gets created. So the dust limit tends to stay right, right around the same level, roughly. Right? So with Bitcoin, that, that, that doesn't happen because as, as the dust limit moves up, you, you're increasing the fee ratio, right? Well, the fee ratio is the dust limit. So if you reach the point where you've got a limit, it can't, can't transact anymore because it's, you know, 10% uh, of, my, of my transaction is going to fees. Well, I start aggregating and I do a lot of transactions, you know, off-chain essentially, and then I, then I settle. I'm still paying 10%, you know, of, of everything that I, that I have left in fees. So the aggregation process doesn't change that. It just moves up the size of the minimum transaction, right? I call it the utility threshold. Instead of being, you know, a $1 transaction is the smallest you can do in Bitcoin. It's now a 10 or 100 or 1,000 or a million. But as you move up, there's fewer and fewer types of transactions that you can do for goods, right, at those higher levels. You can't buy coffee, can't buy cars, can't buy these things. So, so you've excluded all this demand for goods while you've now moved that threshold up. So there's this proportional relationship between um, the utility threshold, right, and the value that can be represented by the money. I mean, you, the, the more that goes up, you, you increase larger transactions and you remove smaller transactions, but there's a lot more smaller transactions, right? And there's this proportionality um, that you can assume between the size of transactions and the total amount of value represented by them. Say, like, for example, there's 10 times as many $10,000 transactions uh, as there are $100,000 transactions, right? So you've excluded all $10,000 transactions when you move, and, you know, everything up to 100000 when you've moved the utility threshold up to that point. So um, basically what, what, what that means is you've, 
as a consequence of fees hitting the point where people can't transact, you can, you can aggregate, you move things up, kind of centralize, right? All these lightning hubs or whatever, you know, settling for people, but you can't represent more utility in the money, right? The money, the Bitcoin still, um, you know, again, it can move up by excluding other stuff, but it can't take on more. So um, some people uh, will say that, well, we can, you know, we can just keep everything um, off chain, right? And, and, and do all these low cost transactions, but that's not really very rational because um, if you can't settle, you have no security. So, you know, we have a channel, but I can't settle because it's 100% of the cost of what I have <laughs> to, s to open or close that channel. So I can't close it. So you just rip me off. I have no, there's no consequence. It's not a realistic um, solution for me to settle and close the channel if the cost of closing the channel wipes out, you know, years of gains. Um, even, 10 even a 10% fee level wipes out a full year of investment gains. And you have to open and close. So a 10% fee level wipes out two years of investment gains, right? So do you, do you see this as like a huge limiting factor of Bitcoin success potentially in the future? Or? No, I see it as something that if understood, it leads to certain inevitable outcomes, right? So once you reach a proportion of fees to, uh, and, and this is certainly what you would do if you had the usage that people imagine, right? The fee level, would, there's only, you only get like five or 6,000 transactions through the chain every 10 minutes, right? And they can be high value, again, excluding everything below it, right? But once you get to the proportion that people will no longer accept, say it's, I mean, say it's 100%, that's fairly easy, right? I think, you know, even if you say 10%, that's pretty high. That's about the highest you see in terms of remittances and other things that people will actually pay to use the money. <laughs> and uh, the again, 10% is about a year's worth of investment gains. So that's two years wiped out for an opening and closing a channel. That's pretty high. So let's say, you know, we get to 10% fees. Um, now you can't, you can't represent any more demand for goods in the money. The more you move up, the more you exclude proportionally. So what happens is you have this money that's, um, you know, usable to that, that extent, but no more demand can be represented. Can't represent any more goods. I can't take on any, eco any more economic value. So demand moves somewhere else, right? But the interesting, another unique thing about Bitcoin, unlike gold, for example, is you can make another one that's exactly the same, right? Like exactly the same in, in the technology, right? In, in, the, in the way it operates, not in the history of it. But uh, you can't do that with gold. You can't make another gold. But then again, you don't need to because you always just mine more and you don't have this, prob this dust problem, right? This divisibility problem. So I think what it inevitably leads to is, is at that point when it's too expensive to use the money f for, you know, all these things, um, you end up with just another one that looks just like it with lower security, lower transaction values. As it gets monetized, right, you could reach the same limit and do it again. You could just create another exactly the same copy, just another Genesis block and do it again. It doesn't happen now because, because of Thier's law. You use the better money, right? Low fees, better security, use that one. Why would you use another one? But when you get to the point where you can't, right, it becomes more costly to use what was presumably the better money. Now, now you use something else. So substitutes, and people just ignore, you know, substitutes. They all this maximalism and shit coiners and all this stuff. But, but you know, this is how Bitcoin evolved, right? And, and, and doing it again would make sense in the case where it becomes too expensive to use. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Would that create a scenario where that new chain just 
helps Bitcoin as it is now find an equilibrium and lower the fee ratio for that? Well, it would be lower on the new chain and presumably some activity that's on the other chain that you know could be moved to the, to the lower fee chain would, but it maybe doesn't have to, right? The higher value transactions are being transacted on the chain that has higher level of security. And people will arbitrage, you know, security for, um, for cost, right? They don't want that level of security. They use a lower cost. But there is no reason to do that now, right? So it doesn't happen. It can't, can't ever get off the ground because there's, I- I there's a better money. Um, but so what people imagine, this perpetual increase in price because of fixed supply ignores the effect of fees, just completely ignores it. Fixed supply is unique to Bitcoin, but so are fees, right? And, um, and that can't be ignored. I, I, so this, this kind of like we all sit around, do nothing and make money off of, off of speculating on people using Bitcoin more and more um, has a limit, right? It's monetization, you know, Okay, we're we're you know the the money is being monetized, but but Bitcoin can becomes at some point fully monetized. Gold never becomes fully monetized. There's always new gold being produced, and you know as in response to economic growth. Um, so that that new demand would not accrue as value to existing holders as it accrues on another chain, and that's the thing that you know hodler community wouldn't like to hear, but. It doesn't hurt Bitcoin at all. It's exactly what you would want. You would want the money to continue to be useful. You can see Mac getting triggered over here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, isn't it would basically it would basically end up being like an unpegged. I try not to trigger too chain. much. It would be a side chain with like an unpegged utility. No, token. just another chain. But if no, you if it you can't it can't be a side chain. It can't why be not? A, it can't because that implies greater demand in the money itself, right? So, so. So sidechains are essentially, even if you look at money and credit in the abstract, right? Sidechains are credit, right? You lightning, it, it's credit that's fully offset by the lockup of the of the money, right? So it's a one-to-one -one credit, but it's it has to be settled in the money. Credit is always settled in the money. Sidechains settle in in the money. Lightning settles in Bitcoin, right? And that ability to settle is essential to the security of those credit right. systems, right? And as I described before, that ability to settle starts to go away when you reach this threshold but you would have theoretically you would have like multiple chains with different security models that could swap in between settle back to bitcoin in like a tr trust minimized manner uh, settling back to bitcoin rate, would would cost would you that kind of high fee rate. level that you're trying to avoid right so no you, you, this is it to me it's like you know, not hard to imagine i don't know why it's, it's, it tends to be hard for people to imagine but you can imagine Bitcoin as this set of chains, right? Where once one gets fully monetized and it becomes expensive to use, now there's, there's potential for another to actually take on value. And as that starts to happen, yet another. Until you've represented as much in value um, that people will demand in the money. Um, I mean, it's, there's got, there is some limit to that, right? The, the amount of all goods in the, in the world, for example, um, or, or the black market fraction of them or something. And it, and it may, be the, may be true that, that there's never enough demand in one chain to, for that to ever happen, right? We never get to a fee level that is high enough um, that people care. But, you know, we've already gotten to a fee level that's high enough that people don't do some things. But um, it's not reached the should say you can you can mitigate that through layering and continue to move up on chain the the size of the transaction 
the minimum size of the transaction that you can do. Right. But as you create enough demand, even through lightning or side chains, right, as you create more and more demand to settle, right, you're going to increase the fee cost of settling to the point where now it's not secure anymore because you can't settle in a cost-effective way. I mean, you know, even, even to just buy one thing, right, even if you want to open a channel, close it, settle, or you, you, you expect you might need to close it because the other person may be not so trustworthy, so if you're sp if you're spending a 50% fee, you know, just to open and close, you've wiped out 100% of the money you put in the channel. <laughs> um, so there is a fee level at which point um, the money becomes unusable, even in, in layering situations. What do you think about, like, dust holidays? Have you ever heard that concept? No. It sounds like fun. Where, <laughs> where miners uh, allow users with dust to, to consolidate UTXOs to get over that fee ratio that you're alluding to. Um, and, and allow meaning the miners donate to well, people. <laughs> so you can see it as donate, or in your scenario where another chain were to start, they they could also see that their capital they've invested in the miners on yeah. the main chain may become less valuable so if people move over to this it other. It's chain. a classic example of economic an economically irrational proposal uh, because it's individual cost socialized gain. Right. Yeah, okay. there's some value to, to me, but it's the same as the value to everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, ec it's, it's very economically irrational, even though people might do it, right? Uh, you can't say that they won't because value is subjective. But um, if you're looking at just purely economic, um, and not just the financial gain, right, but the projected financial gain of it, it's um, not rational. It's just similar to something that somebody pointed out the other day, um, Bishop, I think he said, he said, hey, what if somebody attacks the money by stealing and burning coins that they steal? You know, so reducing supply right, of things demandable in the money. Um, and yeah, it, it's, but it's economically irrational, right? Like I'm going to take on all the cost of doing this plus the opportunity that I could actually spend the money. Maybe I don't want to take the risk of spending it, right? But I took the risk of stealing it and then I burn it and everybody gets the same benefit that I get, right? Well, Brian was it's the it's one like who said that, right? Yeah. On Twitter? Yeah. 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 We yeah. We talked about it a little bit on Twitter and, and I think he sees that. It's just an interesting you know, idea. I guess the argument was is that like using Bitcoin privately is extremely difficult right now. So they would skip that hurdle, right? So that yeah, the, the malware would just be like burn and once we see it's, it's a certain amount gets burned to this address then we unlock right if you can write some machine it. to go do it right then you know the only yeah. cost to you is the machine and you know people do that stuff just for fun certainly feasible but like somebody going out and just stealing somebody's yeah. money and then throwing it away right you can imagine it's like and like go rob the fed and you know burn some dollars or something right <laughs> it's it's socialized gain it's it's a common problem right you have you have socialized benefit and uh, individual cost or whatever so I, I don't see those kind of things as economically rational. It's just like the idea that people would donate hash power against a 51% attack and just pay their own money to help out the community. Possible, might even happen to some extent, but you can't make an argument that that's security because, I mean, at least I don't, because it's, if it's not economically rational, then you can't expect it to happen. Yeah, that's fascinating. I can, I can hear the freaks getting, some freaks getting triggered out there. But these are again, like these are realities, and but there, I mean, there's no the the only people that get would get triggered by anything I just said, presumably, are people that are speculating and, and see perpetual price increase. There's, there's not a negative to Bitcoin, not at all, right? This is a this is a proposed solution to a problem that's inevitable if there's enough adoption. Great. Now we can because you said, well, do you see it just not working? I said, no, it'll it can work like this. What's the problem with that? There is no problem with that. 
not in terms of the money doing what Satoshi envisioned or what people imagined doing, which is providing a stateless money. So the, the, whole, the whole community tends to get driven by speculation, right? I mean, it's not investment, first of all, right? <laughs> investment is when you lend your money to somebody else for production. Speculation is betting that the price will go up or down based on future demand for goods and the money. Um, and, you know, all prices are speculatory to some extent, but interest is predictable, right? There is time preference, and if, there is, if everybody has high enough time preference, no goods get produced. No goods get produced, then people pay more for money, right? And, uh, and even people with high time preference will lend that money. So it's, it's interesting, like economic growth is predictable, right? If you have economic, and people tend to look at these things as like, we have growth and we have contraction and they're kind of offsetting, it's not. Growth is perpetual uh, and predictable. Recession is an anomaly. It's an exception, right? In other words, what it means is that the depreciation of goods has now exceeding the production of goods. Things are getting used up faster than they're getting produced. So there's less and less goods, <laughs> you know, over time. And what happens when there's less and less stuff? People pay more for stuff, <laughs> right? And therefore, people pay more for money to make the stuff. Interest rates rise. Stuff gets produced. People conserve. They don't use up stuff as fast. Depreciation schedules slow down. S so you, there's, there's a natural aspect of growth, which is a consequence of people wanting things and, and of time preference. So um, I, don't, I, can't I, can't, I can't remember what I got on the tangent of, of, of growth being you know, kind of natural, but... Um, Bitcoin's gonna yeah. pump forever. That was the, yeah, yeah, pump forever. <laughs> that was well, the tangent. Yeah, I mean, I mean, doing doing nothing and making money as a as a pr uh, speculating on what's predictable is completely irrational in my mind, right? Like, if it's predictable, you can't speculate on it; it's already priced in. So, what you're doing is you're you're guessing, you're gambling, and sometimes you know that's a that's a good gamble. Um, sometimes it's not, but it's not. This is what this is the point I was making, right? Speculation is inherently not predictable. It's what it means, right? It's it's the part that's not known or you know provable. So, so. The yeah, people who believe that there's this perpetual, not predictable, <laughs> but, but predictable perpetual growth in price for Bitcoin um, are assuming things that just don't necessarily hold up. I mean, there is growth in the, in the case of monetization, right? People moving from one mo money to another. But it's impossible to say whether that has already been fully factored in, right? So I, I did a I did a little computation. I mean, people do crazy computations on trying to estimate price. Like, if we're speculating on price, what is it we're speculating? What what what's the demand that's going to eventually exist? You know, for use of the money. And some people will take like total amount of bank money in the world and say, well, if Bitcoin substituted that, well, when I, I say bank money, I mean credit, right? Bank accounts. Well, Bitcoin's not credit; it's money. So that's not rational to to substitute that. There will be credit in Bitcoin as well. Otherwise, there'll be no production unless it's in some other money, right? So you take the total amount of money in the world, say state money, and look at Bitcoin just replacing all of it. And then you realize, well, okay, if, it's, if white market, you know, kind of goes away, then you're left with 20 to 30% of the world's economy is black market. And if Bitcoin was to um, represent all that fraction of the money, and you were to take the net present value of that, say, 10 years out, right? Bitcoin represents all of the black market. You'd have a certain implied price. And 
um, you know, taking into account some amount of loss of Bitcoin and things like that. But um, at the current price, from what I was able, you know, this is a very rough approximation, but at the current price, it implies about a 7% adoption of the black market. Okay, I mean, it's something... It's material. Uh, that's significant, right? Yeah. That's, I mean, it, it, it implies a future, a net present value of 7%, 10 years in the future of... Um, of 7% adoption of black market. And if you imagine like it being only black market, it couldn't be the only money used in the black market because the black market tends to need things in the white market, right? So that's why they're always trying to get, you know, there's money long. It's why dollars get used and not just some commodity like Coke or something, right? So, so there has to be white market money used by the black market too. So you could really never, in that scenario, I don't think you could ever really fully represent, you know, black market activity in Bitcoin. But some percentage, absolutely. And we already have that. Um, but the vast majority of, uh, well, I don't know. I can't. I can't say this. this again, this this comes this comes down to not provable. There's, but there's, there's there's presumably a significant portion of activity in Bitcoin that causes tr demand to transact and pr therefore price. Um, that's white market, right? And um, if you're speculating on full white market adoption, you're you know you're you're making a fully different set of assumptions. Um, yeah, anyway. fascinating. It's been an incredible conversation. We're an hour and 46 minutes in now. Uh, we got a hard stop here in like 25 minutes. But uh, is there anything in particular you want to touch on before we wrap up here? Or anything that obviously we've been talking about? To the moon. To the moon. <laughs> 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 obviously we've been talking a lot. Uh, Orange coin go up. I love this episode because we, we talked about, we're talking about a lot of maybe blind spots that a lot of Bitcoiners, including myself, uh, have when it comes to the, the limitations of the system. Yeah, I, maybe. Um, what else is interesting? I don't know. You ask. I, I have plenty of things I can talk about. Uh, um, how? Uh, so how's the, the rebuilding of your motorcycle going? <laughs> uh, well, I managed to keep all my fingers. Um, I, I got some bad cuts from the grinding wheel, flap wheel. Um, my uh, my wheels are coming back when I get home in a couple of days. I'll be fully done, and the uh, frame's all welded up and got a lot of the parts. So hoping to hoping to have it together th by the end of the year. What's that process like? So when you're building, like, do you do that to not think about Bitcoin and maybe refresh your mind a little bit? Or I don't know. I, I like to, I've had this bike since 1984, and uh, I took it to college, put a lot of miles on it, and uh, it's been sitting for about 25 years in my basement. So my my daughter wanted to do a, a project with me for school, and so she got me motivated to do it. Um, but I ride a lot now. I keep a bike down in uh, Los Angeles um, at a friend's house and go to Mexico and the desert stuff, um, and I rent, travel around the world. I've been to 80 countries so far. I, I, uh, I like traveling. Um, it gets harder and harder to get to new ones the more you get. Um, Why do you say that? Well, just, just like back stuff to tends to happen in the same places. I go back to Riga. I'm going to Tel Aviv. I'm in, you know, in Tokyo, whatever these places I've been to before. So I did a I'll give you an example. I rented a bike uh, in June and I um, by myself uh, in London and I went out through the channel and I did I did a conference in Amsterdam and a meetup and then I did I did nine countries in Europe and I bike? got one new country, <laughs> Liechtenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go out of my way to get to Liechtenstein, <laughs> um, and so it's it's just getting it gets harder. Um, but uh, I gotta I gotta hit Eastern Europe I think next summer on a bike and get ten new countries and I'll be done with 
all of the major European I, countries. I, this is going to be embarrassing to say, but I think I've only been to like five, five or six. Better than most people. Other countries. 80s and is awesome. That's yeah. that's impressive. I've only met one person that's been to more. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who've been to more, but I've only actually met one person. I was like so disappointed. Like, really? You've been to more than me? <laughs> I mean, how many total countries are there? Like 220. Something. It depends on how you count, but my app, I think it's around 250. Yeah. Right? Is Tone Vey the only one who's been to more places I, than you? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> no. Andreas uh, is doing pretty well, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I think he's in the 60s, probably. All right. Well, traveling. Let's all travel more. I want to travel more. Absolutely. Um, well, Eric, thank you again for coming by, dude. This is a... Uh, sure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been an immense pleasure for me as well. Matt, do you have any... I really enjoyed this one. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming. I always appreciate your work. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, where can we find you? Uh, Twitter, Eve Oskill. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll put the um, the link to the Libitcoin uh, crypto yeah, economics. GitHub.com slash Libitcoin slash Libitcoin dash system slash wiki is where all the economic stuff is. Um, you mentioned donations. How do people donate? Um, send your money to me. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> no we'll... Uh, um, um, you can contact me or Tom Pachia, um and uh, get the details. Um, the organization that uh, we're, we're just working on a final uh, IRS kind of you know letter, um, but the uh, the uh, organization is formed. It's called the Le- Bitcoin Institute, and it's basically just a uh, a way for us to uh, fund development and education uh, through Le Bitcoin. Um, and uh, we, if somebody wants to take advantage of that, just contact me or Tom, and uh, we can hook you up. Hell yeah. All right. That's all we got this week, freaks. Peace and love.